Good evening, welcome back to our School of uh, Theology and uh, to a semester together that we are going to be considering uh, the person uh, of Jesus. Uh, we will uh, quite soon be heading in a direction of uh, focusing on the humanity uh, of Jesus uh, and asking some questions uh, about the nature of the incarnation uh, and the nature of uh, the, the human body and the human mind and the human affections and the human uh, psyche uh, that Jesus uh, possessed and we are going to sort of camp out on, on that theme of the humanity of Jesus uh, a fair bit uh, in a, transitioning in a, in a week or two. Uh, but at this point, uh, we are still uh, looking and examining aspects of the deity uh, of Jesus. Uh, and we've been here before uh, because... When we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, which we did last year, uh, we were looking at the doctrine of God. Uh, part of uh, the argument was, uh, first of all, that there is only one God. Uh, the basic affirmation of faith uh, for the Jews in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, uh, 4. Behold, the Lord your God is one, uh, the so-called Shema of Israel. Uh, um, Shema Elohim, the, the behold, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord, uh, your God, is one. Uh, and uh, despite the fact that uh, we see little hints and adumbrations of plurality in the Old Testament, things like, uh, let us make man in our image, uh, the fact that God says, let us make man in Genesis 1, or or the fact that God's name, uh, Elohim, in, is, is a plural form in Hebrew. The im part is a, is a plural form. Uh, and we sort of immediately rush to the doctrine of uh, the Trinity. Of course, that never occurred to Moses or David or Isaiah or Ezekiel or Daniel uh, because they were strict monotheists. Uh, and uh, these... Uh, these, uh, like the plural name of God, uh, were suggestions not of plurality within the one God, uh, but rather were suggestive of uh, the way perhaps uh, Queen Victoria would have spoken, uh, we, are, we are not amused, when actually she was speaking about herself uh, as the monarch. Uh, and uh, this was suggestive to Old Testament Jews and I'm talking about Old Testament believing godly Jews like, like Moses or David or, or, or Ezekiel. Uh, they were suggestive of uh, God's uh, glory, uh, that he was worthy of, uh, that he was transcendent, uh, that he was worthy of uh, adoration and praise and, and worship. But the fact is when we step into the pages of the New Testament, there is another who calls himself the one God. Uh, the Father is God, but then the Son is God. The Son who is incarnate also has a consciousness of being divine. He is self-evidently human. Uh, he has hands and feet and nose and eyes and ears, and, and he's, he's certainly finite. He's only in one place at any one time. 
Uh, he never traveled more than 120 miles or so. Uh, he, was, uh, he was finite in his knowledge. Uh, his human mind was a finite human mind. It, it was capable of knowing so many things, a great many things, but it was still a finite human mind. And yet, he has a consciousness. There is only one, there's only one he. He's not a split personality. He's finite and, and he speaks of himself as God. Uh, he would say things like, I and my father are one. Uh, he, uh, he claims uh, things like, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, he claims to have a pre-existence. He claims to be divine. So he is infinite and finite. He is omnipresent. He's present everywhere. And yet, physically, bodily, he's present only in one location. Now, don't think that you understand that, even though you do a course in, uh, in, in theology and you read books and, and you recite uh, a creed like the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Creed, and you think, well, I've got that. Uh, two uh, two uh, natures in one uh, person, in, uh, in a hypostatic union. Uh, one hypostasis, two persons. And uh, all we're doing is, at the minute, just throwing words out there because we're dealing with uh, infinities and immensities here. Uh, the fact is that we have these phenomena, and, and one of the phenomena is that Jesus was finite. Jesus was a human being. Uh, he was a, he was a uh, what do you call it, a zygote. Uh, he was, uh, he was a, he was a um, this is your field, uh, he, what comes after zygote? Uh, uh, he was, a, he was a, an embryo, that'll do, he was an embryo. Uh, he was a day-old baby. Uh, he was a 12-year-old. Uh, some of you are dealing with 14-year-olds. Well, Jesus was a 14-year-old. Uh, he was an 18-year-old. He was a 25-year-old. He was a 30-year-old. Uh, Self-evidently finite, limited, um, in, in one location. And, and yet, at the same time, he is, as we are going to look at tonight, the Son of God. And the Son of God is a, is a title. It's a title like uh, Christ is a title. Christ is uh, uh, a Greek form of the Hebrew uh, for Messiah, the Anointed One. Uh, he, is, uh, he is Jesus of Nazareth. Have you met my little boy? Mary might have said, uh, this is Jesus, you know, as a three-year-old. Uh, who's uh, just barely begun to walk as a toddler. And have uh, you met him? This is Jesus. And, uh, and where do you live? Nazareth. Um, but he's also the Son of God. And the Son of God is a, is a divine um, title. Now, there's more than one. Uh, let's uh, look at the outline. And the outline is a little um, limited this evening. I apologize for that. Um, more, more condensed than usual, and that's partly because my life has been a little busy over the last two weeks, and, and, and partly because my secretary was out, uh, Eve was out today, and, uh, and, and this had to be done late last night. So, so I'm going to say a little more than actually on the outline, so you may want to add some things uh, with, your, with your pen, uh, if you like. But uh, let's, uh, let's begin... Uh, and the first thing I want to say is that there is more than one in Scripture who's called God's son. So Adam, for example, is called God's son uh, in Luke 
Uh, King Solomon is referred to as God's son uh, in 1 Chronicles 28.6. Israel is called God's son uh, at the time of the Exodus uh, when Moses is being given the charge to bring Israel out of Egypt. God says to Moses uh, in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my son in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in uh, the Beatitudes, one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the peace, peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So Adam is a son of God. King Solomon is a son of God. Israel is a son of God. We are called sons of God by uh, adoption. Uh, we may refer to God as father. Uh, teach us to pray, the disciples said, and, and Jesus said, Our Father, uh, who art in heaven. Even angels can be referred to as God's sons. Uh, when God finally speaks in the book of Job, in chapter 38, uh, there's a reference there in Job 38.7 uh, to angels being referred to as God's sons. So, uh, the, the, the concept of a son of God is not unique to Jesus, Um, Adam, King Solomon, angels, Israel, even Christians are sons of God. And so we want to ask a a more focused question. In what sense is Jesus a son of God? And in what sense is that different from the way other people can be called uh, a son of God? Because self-evidently it is because the term son of God becomes a divine title. And one of the ways, uh, if you want to prove that Jesus is divine, one of the ways of going about that is to look at what did Jesus Jesus refer to himself as. Uh, And uh, Son of God was was one of those things. It wasn't the most prominent from Jesus' point of view. He more often called himself the Son of Man than the Son of God. But when Scripture speaks about Jesus, it, it... very often speaks of him as the Son of God. And I've I've just brought together a lot of biblical passages here uh, just to give us a little taste and flavor of the biblical testimony uh, to uh, the the Bible's attribution to Jesus of the title, uh, the Son of God. So at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, the angel uh, said to her, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is to, uh, to Mary. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Uh, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And this is the annunciation to Mary uh, that she's expecting a baby. She isn't married though she's betrothed. Uh, to Joseph, and uh, she hears this uh, stupendous news uh, that, that the Holy Spirit uh, has conceived in her uh, one who will be born, and his name will be the Son of God. Uh, his title will be the Son of God. That's what he will be called. He will be called the Son of God. Uh, and then uh, in Matthew 14, the disciples have just witnessed uh, Jesus uh, stilling Uh, the storm uh, on uh, the Sea of Galilee and uh, in response to this 
this uh, display of, uh, of, of sovereignty, uh, truly you are the son of God. Not you are a son of God, but you are the son of God. Uh, the transfiguration, and we're going to come back to this later this evening. Uh, we have, actually it occurs at the time of the baptism uh, and the temptation narrative that follows the baptism. And again, here at the transfiguration, uh, God, God perforates, as it were, space and time. The Father uh, perforates space and time and he speaks, speaks to disciples, uh, but also speaks to his son. Uh, and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. A word, first of all, directed to the disciples, and in this case to three of the disciples uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, but also I think a word that was intended for Jesus himself. Uh, the Father is saying, at the, and, and in this case at the Transfiguration, at the very uh, out onset of uh, a journey now that is going to lead inexorably to Jerusalem and to his crucifixion, it's as though the Father wants to reassure the Son reassure the son not in his divine mind his divine mind doesn't need reassurance his divine mind always knows that he's the son of God it's his human mind his human mind must believe that he is the son of God uh, we'll, we're, we're, I'm just going to tease you with some of those things because we're going to look at that more closely later but in his human mind it's not that his divine mind Jesus' divine mind is always having sort of discourse with his human mind and there's sort of a flow of communication between the divine mind and human mind of Jesus as though every time Jesus gets into a kind of a predicament he can just sort of plug in to his divine mind he has a little a little a little electronic thing and you can just plug in download some gigabytes of information from his divine mind yes I'm the son of God and that's enough no that's that's not how the incarnation actually works uh, as far as the human mind of Jesus is concerned I think it was entirely dependent on the ministry of the Holy Spirit rather than being dependent on the divine mind of Jesus follow me closely now we're going into some deep waters and, and uh, we're go that's where we're going in a couple of weeks. How does the human mind relate to the divine mind of Jesus? And I think here in the transfiguration you're being given a, a, um, a little glimpse that actually when, when, when the human Jesus needs reassurance he, he's heading in a trajectory that's going to lead to crucifixion and he knows that because the Spirit has told him that and Scripture has told him that and circumstances and providence is now telling him that and the Father comes, not, not Jesus' divine mind, but the Father comes and reassures him of his true identity. He is human and divine, but there's only one him. There are not two hymns. There's only one he. He is both divine and human and the Father comes to speak to him and he says you're my son and I love you and I think all of us can uh, at least all of us who are fathers and all of us have had fathers or have fathers and, and, and most of us can relate to that there are moments and times in uh, the lives of our children and, and that's what they need to hear they need to hear you're my son and I love you 
Uh, and uh, Jesus is hearing that. Uh, he's a son to the Father. He's the Son of God. John 5:23. The Father is uh, resolute that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Uh, John 14:13 in the upper room. Whatever you ask in my name, this will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus has a has a self consciousness of being a son to the Father. He, he understands that that is his position, that's his status. He is a son. Uh, verse uh, uh, John 3.36, uh, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Uh, Acts 9 20 after the resurrection. This is an example of Paul preaching now. Uh, he, he preaches Jesus as the Son of God. Immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Now you understand that would not have gone down well in the synagogues, because in the synagogues that would be uh, tantamount to blasphemy. Because there is only one God, and now, and now uh, Paul is saying, uh, uh, that uh, Jesus is also a son of God and, and the son of God, which in the Jewish mindset is a divine title, uh, and, and so on. And uh, there are just uh, lots and lots of these uh, examples. So moving on uh, to number three, uh, let's look at these uh, examples uh, in a little more uh, in a little more detail here to try and understand what a son of God as a divine title might, might mean. What are the connotations to the title of the son of God? And there's a foundational text here uh, in 2 Samuel seven thirteen to 16. This is the time when Second um, Samuel 7 is one of those passages where immediately comes to the mind what? When, when you hear Second Samuel 7, what do you think of? You think of a covenant, and you think of a covenant with David, just as there are covenants in the Bible with uh, Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses, so there's a covenant with David. Uh, David wants to build a house uh, for God. He wants to build a temple, and God will come to David and say, no, it's not you that will build a house. It's actually your son who will build a house, and actually I want to build a house for you. Second uh, Samuel seven thirteen. he shall, he, now who is the he here? And I think, I think in the first instance, the he here is Solomon, David's son. He shall build a house for my name. Right? David wanted to build a house. God has said, no, but your son, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's that's quite a claim since, since Solomon's, uh, Solomon's kingdom didn't, didn't actually go much further than Solomon uh, when you come to think about it. Um, so here's a prophecy that, I, that either fell flat on its face from day one or you get the impression that this prophecy has something more than just the Davidic dynasty and the line of the kingly succession uh, of, uh, of the Davidic kings. Uh, and, of course, from our perspective, we understand that ultimately here it is the line that leads to Jesus um, that's being spoken of, whose throne 
uh, the throne of his kingdom will be forever. I will be to him a father. Now, I think, first of all, he's still speaking about Solomon. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, well, obviously, that's not Jesus, that's Solomon. And did Solomon commit iniquity? Oh, my, did Solomon commit iniquity. Uh, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of, sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, uh, the, the point of this passage is that here is an allusion to a relationship between David's son, Solomon, and God as a relationship of a father to a son. But in the midst of that that relationship in which Solomon is a son of God, there's contained a promise that the kingdom that Solomon begins will actually be forever. So there's a, a, a transition here from Solomon to Jesus. So, so embedded within this Davidic covenant, and that's what it is, it's a, it's a covenant that God makes with, date with King David and Psalm 89 uh, we'll refer back to this passage and we'll, and we'll actually call it a covenant. Uh, embedded within that covenant is a, a promise of a, of a father-son relationship. Uh, so what, what I'm saying is that when, when Jesus is called the Son of God, there is an allusion to the fact that Jesus is in the line of King David. Jesus is the king whose kingdom is going to last forever. It self-evidently wasn't Solomon, right? Although there was a promise that was made to Solomon, and I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, but there's a kingdom here, a promise of a kingdom, of a rule, of a relationship that's going to last forever. So when Jesus now, now gets this title, and when God affirms in statements like the transfiguration, uh, you are my son, I am your father. Uh, there's, there's a sort of an allusion back to this is the promised king. Put it, you know, go back to the first century. Go back to the first, to the first generation who hear this attribution. Uh, and, and, and go back to the Jewish mindset. When, when, when the Jews hear Jesus is the son of God, that's what they're going to hear. They're going to hear this is, this is the promised king. This is the line of King David. Uh, Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, this, of course, is a Christmas passage. Uh, one of the great prophecies about Jesus. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now... When you, when you think of sons, you don't immediately think of government. You're more likely to think of submission. But I'm, you know, puppy story. The, the puppy story. The, the, vet, uh, the vet told me that from day one, I was to roll him over on his back, hold him down, look him right in the eye and say, I'm the leader of this pack. <laughs> And not to let him go until he submits, until he stops wriggling. 
right? When you think of your son, you, you don't think of government rule. You, you, you instinctively think of submission. But here, unto us a child is born, a son is given, and the government, it goes straight from son to rule, from son to king. Uh, Isaiah 9.6 is alluding back to 2 Samuel 7. That's what's happening here. It's, it's, it's a, it's a little, little reminder that God had said back to King Solomon that there's going to be a son who's going to be a king who's going to rule forever. And that's what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is speaking at the very uh, death throes of Israel. Uh, the, the, the northern kingdom is, is going and gone and the southern kingdom is about to go to the to the Assyrians and the Babylonians and they're going to go into exile and it's going to be darkness and gloom and despair and yet at the very beginning of the prophecy there's, don't forget God has said a son and he's going to be a king the government is going to be upon his shoulders or in the second psalm um, the so called the Davidic king is called the Lord's anointed or Messiah or or, or Christ, kiss the son. Right? The context of that psalm, uh, it's a Davidic psalm, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, two of the great messianic psalms in the Old Testament. If you lived in the time of uh, Jesus or uh, the time of the Apostle Paul and uh, you, were, you, know, you did a poll and said, what's your favorite psalm? And you know, today it would be Psalm 23 or, or perhaps the 100th psalm, but more likely, I'm sure if I did this poll in here, what's your favorite psalm? You're going to say the 23rd psalm. But in Jesus' time, the favorite psalm would have been Psalm 110, followed by the second psalm. They were messianic psalms. They were psalms that spoke about the Davidic king who would come. And to a people who had been subjugated in exile and then, and then emerged and for 450 years had been under the dominance of successive empires, Greek empire, Seleucid empires, Roman empire, they, they don't even have an identity anymore. They're, they're longing for the king who's going to deliver them. And so this psalm, this Davidic psalm, written a thousand years, right, in, in, in the first millennium, a thousand years B.C. And here's this psalm speaking about the Lord's anointed one, and it says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. The son. There it is. So in David's time, there was a, an anointed one, Messiah, Christ. There was an anointed one who is a son. Actually, it's very interesting how Paul uses the second psalm uh, when he's preaching in uh, Acts 13. Uh, and we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that's fascinating from more than one perspective. But I think it's saying in Paul's mind that the fulfillment of the second psalm occurs when Jesus is resurrected. That at the resurrection of Jesus there's a fulfillment of the second psalm. Speaking of course largely uh, in Acts 13 to a Jewish uh, audience. 
Uh, so, uh, the, the, the F there at the bottom of the page, Davidic typology, forward uh, trajectory, those are just uh, uh, names that theologians uh, give to what's happening in passages like Psalm 2 or Second Samuel 7 or Isaiah chapter uh, 9, um, that, that there's a, a, an initial reference to David or David's son Solomon, but it has a forward trajectory that culminates in the coming of the Son, uh, the Son of God, uh, the King who establishes his kingdom. Uh, So that uh, the very first words out of the mouth of John the Baptist is uh, that the kingdom has come uh, in the ministry of of Jesus. And then just uh, one more verse here uh, from the book of Hebrews, a very important verse of course, the opening opening. Um, prologue to Hebrews long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets right? and he, he spoke to them uh, in different ways in dreams and visions and so on uh, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son he's the son of God that God spoke in times past by the prophets but now he speaks to us by his son whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, who or, or, or what is the Son of God? And Hebrews 1 Uh, 1 to 3 says two very significant things about the identity of the Son of God. First of all, it says he is the radiance, uh, some of you have the King James Version in your head, so uh, the effulgence I think is the word that might come to your memory if you remember your King James Version of Hebrews 1. He is the effulgence, he is the radiance Uh, of God. There's a little bit of debate as to whether the word radiance is uh, uh, meant in an active or a passive sense and I take it to be an active sense but that's way too technical to go into here and that's why I've dropped it down to a font size that if you're not interested you can't even read it. Um, But but I am aware of that issue and I'm actually disagreeing. For those of you here in the know here, I'm actually disagreeing with Kehada's boss which is kind of unforgivable because um, he's, he's one of the good guys here for sure. Um, but I actually take bagasma uh, uh, here in Greek, the radiance, to be, uh, to be in the positive sense. He, he radiates. He actually uh, radiates um, the glory of God. Out, out of him emerges the glory of God. He radiates it. And I think that's what you see a little glimpse of at the transfiguration. At the transfiguration, you know, Jesus, I mean, if you saw Jesus on any, on any given day, what would you see? You know, you wouldn't see someone with a halo around his head, you know, glows in the dark, uh, you know, sets off uh, radiation meters, Geiger counters, uh, he, was, he was an ordinary looking man. He was an ordinary looking Jew. I, I don't, please don't 
take that in any disrespectful sense, but he was, he was ordinary. Actually, Isaiah says so, that he had no, no comeliness, no, no beauty that we should desire him. You know, he wouldn't have made it to the front page of Men's Health, a magazine that I often see in the back of uh, aeroplanes. Somebody's left it there, and you, you take it out, and you look at the cover, and you think, well... I was never that, and I'm never going to be that. Uh, so just don't worry about it. Uh, now, 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 Jesus, uh, Jesus was, an, I think, a fairly ordinary-looking individual. He wasn't, you know, he didn't glow in the dark. And yet, something extraordinary happens on the Mount of Transfiguration, because his his very body begins to to glow. Right? Luke, uh, Luke uses a word that, that is suggestive of, of lightning, that, that blinding uh, light. You know, have you ever walked outside, uh, puppy story, have you ever walked outside uh, on a night when there's lightning? And it can be dark, and then all of a sudden it's like daylight, just for a second. I mean, this, this light emerges, and th- I think that's what happens on the Mount of Transfiguration. That something of the native divine glory of Jesus shines through his humanity. Now, his humanity remains human. It doesn't become divinized. It is still a human body. But there's, there's more to him than just a human being. He is human, but there's more to him. He is also God. But that Godhead, that deity of Jesus, was for the most part Veiled. That's, uh, that's Calvin's sort of favorite word for it. He uses a word, krupsis. It was, it was veiled. It was like a veil was drawn over his deity. You know, when, when, he, when he walked into town, you know, people didn't, didn't immediately say, God. They just saw another human being. They saw a blasphemer. They saw yet another messianic pretender. So, so, so for the most part, his deity was, was held, as it were, almost in abeyance, incognito. But not on the Mount of Transfiguration. And perhaps, perhaps for the benefit of the disciples... But perhaps for the benefit of the human Jesus, God allows something of his native glory to shine forth. This is who you really are. You are the son of God. You are the son of God. And then the second thing that the book of Hebrews says, he is the exact imprint. Which is taken from the world of um, lithography or, or printing. Uh, and, and, and is suggestive of the fact that whatever God is, he is. He is identical. Whatever, whatever mark, whatever characteristic, whatever contours you're going to describe that make up deity, Jesus was that. He was the exact imprint of his nature. Whatever the nature of God is, he is the exact imprint of it. That's, uh, that's strong, isn't it? 
You know, you, there are no loopholes here. So for the book of Hebrews, son, the title son, uh, he has spoken to us by his son. And that son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. So son of God for the author of Hebrews is a title of deity. He is as much God as the father is God. And then uh, in John, uh, in, the, in, the, in the writings of John, and there are five uh, profound statements. Uh, and, the word was, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John introduces here... Um, a descriptive, in addition to the title son, he introduces another descriptive here, and, and the word is monogonase. Now, think back to your King James days, and, and I understand some of you are still in your King James days, and I don't mean that in any dis- disrespectful way whatsoever. I just, but, but for some of you, you, you've forgotten your King James, so just, just remind you that the King James Version translated monogonase as only begotten. The ESV doesn't do that. The ESV doesn't say the only begotten of the Father, but the only Son. It, it drops that idea of, of, of begotten. No. Hold that thought somewhere in your head, if you can, for a minute. Let's look at the other verses, because they're all saying virtually the same thing. So again, in the prologue, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only, right, monogamous, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, his only son, monogamous, monogamous, only begotten son in the King James. And, and the same in John 3.18 and the same then in 1 John 4.9. This, this, uh, this uh, idea of monogamous. Um, the only son. Now, uh, without getting too technical here, uh, but I, I know there are some Greek uh, buffs in here. Um, the, the problem is that it was believed for a, a good period of time that monogamous was derived from a Greek word for giving birth, for, for, for birthing, generation, uh, rather, than, uh, rather than from uh, what, I, what, what now scholarship uh, seems to think that this word monogamous is derived from the word um, uh, to... Um, uh, to become rather than the word to beget. Now, here's, here's the problem. Even if, even if that flashed across your mind and, and, and left. But here's the problem. If Jesus is a son, right, you, ha- you have within the one God, one who is called a father and one is, is called a son. The only way that you and I can think of that is in terms of begetting. All of us have fathers who, 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 were, who were in existence before we were. That's true of everybody. Everybody in this room has a father who, who, who lived before we did. 
Before we were ever conceived, our fathers existed. I mean, even if you don't know who your father was, he existed before you did. So, obviously that can't be true about Jesus. You can't say that in the Godhead there's a a father who exists before the Son. So the Son has a beginning. He may be God-like. He may be a, 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 the, the, the most magnificent God-like being there is, but there was a time when he was not. That's Arianism. But that's, that's, the, that's the doctrine that Athanasius fought when there, were, when there were actually little children singing little choruses. There was a time when he was not. Imagine that. They began to sing in certain churches uh, in North Africa and elsewhere. Uh, They actually taught their children to sing this little chorus. There was a time when when he was not. In other words, that Jesus was, was, there was a a begetting, because that's the only way we can understand the the metaphor of father-son. That the son is is subordinate to the father in some way in, in a temporal sense. So that obviously can't be true. If Jesus is as much God as the Father is God, but yet he's a son, so he's begotten, the only way way that you can say, that you can sort of make sure that there never was a time when the son was not is to say only begotten. That that he is is in a unique uh, relationship to the Father. Now that uh, that issue uh, that issue has uh, sort of um, uh, been around, and it's uh, certainly upset uh, the church from 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 time to time. Um, these days, if you read your ESV, um, all of that idea of of Jesus being begotten. You know the creeds. Let me remind you of the creeds here. The Nicene Creed says there are. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, each of them has a unique attribute. The Father is unbegotten, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. Right? That's the Nicene Creed. The Father is unbegotten, um, the Son is begotten, and the Spirit proceeds. And in the Western Church, proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, what does that mean? I have no idea what it means. I have absolutely no idea what it means, and neither did those who coined those words know what it meant. Sometimes you have to say something in order to not say nothing, anything at all. And what they were trying to do was to, was to close some doors, and they found themselves, now where are we? And actually, I don't think they were sure where they were. But, 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 but there is a difference between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There are three he's. There are three persons or uh, per- personae is a a Latin word, or there are three hypostases, that's a Greek word. And part of the problem in the early church is that you have a Latin church and you have a Greek church, and the Latin folk didn't speak Greek, right? Augustine, one of the greatest theologians uh, there ever was, didn't speak a word of Greek. He did did all his thinking in Latin. And you've got the Greek saying one thing and the Latin saying some things and, and lost in translation. 
And that's a, that's a part of the problem uh, with the history of the theology here about the Son of, uh, the Son of God. He is, the ESV represents modern scholarship in, in its understanding of what this word monogenes actually means. And monogenes is now understood to be a word of uniqueness, not a word of origin. So Jesus is the only son in, in the sense that he is absolutely unique and has no reference whatsoever to Jesus' origin. As though the father is the sort of fount of deity. Of deity. Uh, a, a phrase that often occurs in some of the patristic uh, fathers. Let's uh, go down to number six. Uh, I've got a question mark here for subordination. Uh, let's look at some tricky, tricky verses here. John eight twenty eight. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then will you know that I am He and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He's a son, actually not son of God here, but son of man, but the, the two titles are actually uh, work almost synonymously as far as what they represent. They're both, they're both titles of deity. Right? Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that son of man is a reference to Jesus' humanity and son of God is a reference to Jesus' deity uh, that, that was widely believed uh, 200 years ago. But actually, I think that's a mistake. Son of man comes from Daniel, Daniel 7 and Daniel 10, and is actually a title of deity. He's, he's the king who has all authority and he's called the son of man. But this son of man can do nothing of his own authority. He is subordinate to his heavenly father. Well, if Jesus is God, how can he be subordinate to his heavenly father? Jesus prays. He's always praying. He gets, he gets up early in the morning and prays. It's, it's suggestive. Prayer is, a, is, is not just suggestive. It's a declaration of your subordination. You are, you are, subor you are reliant upon the will of someone else. That's what prayer means. Uh, John 5.19, the Son can do nothing of his own accord. Uh, John 14.28, the Father is, is greater than I. Now, here, here are the two things we've, we've been talking about. On the one hand, we've said Jesus is the Son of God, which means he is the effulgence, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the express image of his nature. He is as much God as the Father is God. He has all authority in, in heaven and in earth is given to him. And yet he says, on the other hand, I can't do anything unless my Father tells me. My Father is greater than me. How do we reconcile those two things? And the reconciliation has to take place. Now, now follow me. I know the lasagna is kicking in, but follow me now, because this is very important. The reconciliation of those two things must take place not at the level of Jesus' nature. He is not subordinate in nature, but he is subordinate in economy. He takes on the task of being the Messiah. He takes on the task of being the one who will do his Father's will. So as far as his role as 
the Messiah is concerned, as far as his role as our Savior is concerned, he becomes, voluntarily becomes subordinate. Right? As, as the God-man, the two natures in one person, but as, as the God-man, he is subordinate to the Father. In his divine nature, he's not subordinate. There is no subordination of the nature of the Son to the nature of the Father because there's only one nature. There's only one God. Uh, you thought the doctrine of the Trinity was tricky. Uh, the doctrine of the two natures of Jesus is equally tricky because sometimes, sometimes the statement is a statement of the absolute deity of Jesus and sometimes Jesus is using the term son here in his role and capacity as the divine Messiah, a son. He is, he is God, but he is also in union with his human nature. And as the Messiah, in his role as the Messiah, he is uh, subordinate. Now the technical language is, uh, and, and you see it on, on F there above number 7, uh, there is no ontological subordination, but there is economic subordination. That would be the technical language for what we've been, uh, for what we've been talking about. Well, I was going to say something about the transfiguration, but my time uh, now has, has, has gone. Um, let, me, let me summarize here uh, with one or two uh, sentences. We've been looking at Jesus as the Son of God. It was a, it was a, a self-consciousness that he himself had. He was, he was aware, he was self-aware that that was his identity. He is the Son of God. That is the attribution that is given to him by the apostles. That's the attribution that's given to him by John, by the author of Hebrews, by Paul in his early uh, preaching. And it has allusions back to the promise given to David that, that a son would come whose kingdom would be forever. He is in the line of that messianic fulfillment of a rule and a reign and a kingdom that is going to last forever. And remember, just, uh, just before he left us and ascended, he said, all authority in heaven and earth is given unto me. Right? That kingly authority is an allusion back to the covenant with David. And it's also an allusion to his title. He is the son of God. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've revealed to us your beloved and only Son. That he was made flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you for that glimpse that we see on the Mount of Transfiguration when you spoke to him and said, You are my Son and I love you. And he gave himself in submission to your will all the way to his death upon the cross 
to bear our sins, to die in our room instead as the divine Messiah, as the one to whom belongs all authority in heaven and in earth. We would bow and worship you, Lord Jesus, the Son of God. Write these things now upon our hearts for Jesus' sake. Amen.